We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Ross Feingold. Good evening, Gavin. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith. And good evening, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the top stories of the year that was, I should say, and those that come recommended by my guests in the categories of domestic politics, foreign relations, business, society, culture, and the dumbest or funniest story of the year from here in Taiwan. So we'll jump straight in and begin with domestic politics. And Donovan, you chose the sorry saga that was the KMT presidential primary. Yeah, well, both primaries were a bit rough. Um, but the KMT primary, I think, was kind of a microcosm of some of the problems that the KMT has been facing this year. Um, they came into the year uh, riding pretty high off of the Han wave and the electoral victories late last year. Now, it was really kind of a bizarre situation, though, is that the KMT party chair, Wu Duani, had been marginalized by the primary winning campaigns throughout the country, had been marginalized pretty much up into Taipei. Uh, with the losing candidate up there, Ding Shouzhong, and uh, who was and after the election uh, late last year, who was riding, who, the people who were really riding high was, of course, Han Guoyu, uh, who won a stunning victory in Kaohsiung, um, uh, Lu Xiuyan here in Taichung, the mayor of Taichung, uh, and uh, Hou Youyi in New Taipei City. And all of them were kind of organized and backed by uh, Wang Jinping, who pulled off this amazing feat of unifying uh, the factions in the KMT pretty much across the country. So the KMT was coming into this year looking really strong. Uh, they had just won a blowout victory. and uh, But Wu Duanyi, the chairman, was kind of marginalized. Now, the people who were assumed to be uh, going to run for president at the time were, of course, Wu Duanyi, which is pretty normal. The chair uh, would, would run for president. It's pretty, it was an open secret he wanted the presidency. Wang Jinping uh, was, um, and these were two major candidates. And Eric Chu was a little bit of a surprise. He was a candidate last time, but he threw in his hat pretty early. So it was looking to be kind of a uh, kind of a you know it's a pretty logical progression as to who would be the presidential nominee. Now Wu Duanyi quickly figured out though that he wasn't popular enough to win, and he'd more or less lost control of the party during the last election, which is really not a good position for the party chair to be in. And uh, Wang Jinping, uh, the ex-legislative um, speaker, was riding high. So what he did is he tried to outmaneuver Wang Jinping. He then started to try and get Han Guoyu, the newly elected mayor of Kaohsiung, to run as uh, to run as the presidential candidate. Now, of course, Wang Jinping, he was kind of Wang Jinping's protege. He managed to split the two, and it took quite a while, but eventually he changed enough of the rules, bent over backwards, did everything he possibly could to get Han Guoyu to run as the presidential candidate. Now, this, of course, offended all the other candidates, and Terry Goa eventually jumped in as well. He's the Foxconn founder. Um, and suddenly the race was, uh, you know, Wang Jinping left in a huff because, you know, the rules were being broken, changed, manipulated, whatever, to try and get Han Guoyu to run as the candidate. So finally, really what it boiled down to was a run between uh, Han Guoyu, uh, the upstart populist uh, and very popular mayor of Kaohsiung, and he and so he became you know he started you know he he won the primary eventually beating Terry Go. Now Terry Go then left the party, 
And this was a ma- another major disaster. But Wu Duanin was f- following a very short-term goal, which is, I think, to reclaim control of the party. So he finally got Han Guoyu in as the presidential nominee. Uh, but the party, meanwhile, was running into a series of problems. It was financially, uh, it's financially strapped, and he hadn't done very much, uh, meaning Wu, uh, hadn't done very much to try and bring the party's finances back into line. And he offended Terry Goh, who was the one guy who saved the party after the ill-gotten gains law came into force. Um, he hadn't done much to bring in, as far as anyone, know, as far as I can tell, at least, to try and uh, repair the finances of the party. Um, as far as I know, he hasn't uh, talked to big party bigwigs like Lian Zhan, who have tons of money. So they are, have come into this election with the newly elected mayor Han Guoyu now his popularity collapsing, um, and in part because he had you know only just been elected mayor and now he's already running for president and he was a nobody a year ago. Um, and he was becoming increasingly erratic, and he's become more and more negative. Finally, at the end of the primary, uh, Udoni had succeeded in breaking up a lot of the alliances, uh, or damaging, I should say, not breaking them necessarily, but damaging a lot of the uh, relationships and alliances that, that kept the party strong, losing Wang Jinping as an ally, losing Terry Goh, who would you know could have financially saved or propelled the party forward, um, and then now we're stuck with a candidate who uh, has been sinking in the polls really quite dramatically. And as soon as he kicked off the campaign, right at the end of the uh, the uh, at the end of the um, the primary, uh, had by this point had become after a million and one attacks from both the public and the press, online memes, had started to become angry and defensive against the very uh, and started swearing on stage. Uh, and this kind of thing, whereas he had won previously on being a very popular, uh, sorry, very uh, populist, but also very positive uh, candidate last year when he won for mayor. So now the KMT is faced with a whole series of problems, largely of their own creation, and particularly Wu Duanis. Right, that's very interesting. Donovan, now, Ross, your top domestic political story of the year is the hay that's being given here in Taiwan by politicians to the Hong Kong protests. Well, it would seem that at times the DPP and leading personalities in the DPP, whether in the legislative UN or party headquarters or the presidential office or government agencies, have actually been running for office, not in Taiwan, but in Hong Kong. Um, bit curious why they'd want to be elected as district councillors, which was the most recent election in Hong Kong last month, uh, or maybe they're running for LegCo seats in, in next year's LegCo election uh but it but it seems that uh we've imported into Taiwan's politics this year which is the, the obviously the presidential election as well as the legislative UN election the significant uh element of Hong Kong discussion and uh or the other way to look at that is we also exported from Taiwan into Hong Kong's politics uh the Taiwan election um whether or not there's so much speculation, Gavin, right? It's, it's, it's almost become another one of these cliches in, in Taiwan reporting uh, or reporting about Taiwan that, oh, did Hong Kong impact the Taiwan 
election, you know, that really remains to be seen. Uh, typically, an election in, in a democracy is going to be about uh, personal economic circumstances. And, and we could see, for example, um, in the recent candidate debates that this gets a lot of attention by the candidates um, more so than, than most other issues. So whether or not Hong Kong is ultimately a, a key determinant uh, on January 11th remains to be seen. It, again, it's it's something the media, especially global media, who um, only really see the Facebook posts and, and other uh, messaging that's come out of Taiwan politics about Hong Kong, and then they let that impact how they report the Taiwan election. Uh, but clearly, um, the, the DPP tried to make the most out of events in Hong Kong. And the listeners should keep in mind a very important aspect of this, that it went so far, or the extent of this went, went, went so long and so deep that even student leaders in Hong Kong recently began to criticize Hong Kong politi- uh, sorry, Taiwan politicians for doing this. A, a, a prominent student uh, leader criticized President Tsai Ing-wen by name. He, he subsequently apologized, uh, but you know, they're, 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 they're students, they're young, they're, they make some of the mistakes of youth. However, they're not stupid either. They, and they, they called it out for what it is. Again, even though he subsequently apologized, uh, yeah, there was some basis for the criticism. Right, moving on to foreign relations. And Ross, you picked no international participation and the loss of the Solomons and Kiribati as diplomatic allies this year. And also uh, not just no international organization participation, uh, but no free trade agreement invitations just even to begin negotiations and most prominently CPTPP, but also a lack of bilateral free trade agreement negotiations. Once again, there's speculation about the United States possibly negotiating an FTA with Taiwan next year. And there's a lot of support for that in Congress, as there's been you know, pretty much for the last 20 years. But uh, putting aside the United States, because Taiwan's foreign relations are not 100 percent about the United States. So putting aside the United States, um, the the other outcomes really uh, aren't very good for Taiwan. So as you mentioned, Gavin, uh, the two derecognitions coming within a few days of each other. If President Tsai is reelected, we should expect uh, this to happen again next year. We'll be talking about another one or two countries, just like we've done um, throughout her presidency, because uh, this has happened now multiple times a year. Uh, Again, the international organizations, um, China uh, was very insistent on this. So unless the Taiwan government will accept a 92 consensus and is willing to go to international organizations as an observer or a a sub-member of of China's delegation, these other other statuses that the government of of Taiwan refuses to accept, um, then Taiwan is shut out from international organizations. And all those statements, whether it's from members of parliament in Europe or Canada or the U.S. Congress or from the executive agencies of, of other governments, foreign ministries or, or relevant ministries, whether it's health or uh, transportation, airline safety, etc., uh, all those statements of support for Taiwan have not changed the reality. We don't see any of these countries boycotting 
these international forums uh, as a result of China's opposition to Taiwan. So uh, it's it's nice that they issue those statements, but it's all talk. There, there is no action there. So Taiwan did face, again, putting aside the United States, um, Taiwan did face a very challenging uh, foreign relations environment. And Donovan, you, of course, you picked ramped up U.S. support for Taiwan as your foreign relations story. <laughs> yes, we it looks like we make a good pair here on this one. Um, yeah, I thought that what's very interesting is that previously you had this kind of sporadic – uh, in the past, you had, you know, for the last couple of two, three, four decades, essentially the support that's come out of the U.S. has been kind of hit or miss, a little there, a little here, and generally coming out of the Republican side of the U.S. Um, and in the last year or so, uh, things have really ramped up on the U.S. side. Now, on the on the executive side, uh, two two things uh, that immediately jump you know jump to the fore are uh, that the Trump administration has finally started to lose, you know open up uh, the spigot again on arms sales uh, to Taiwan, um, and the the U.S. government has started to openly and clearly strategically include like Mike Pence did in his speech and in this whole Indo new Indo Pacific strategy. Uh, openly mentioned Taiwan as a country and as part of the strategy. And also they've been meeting with, uh, you know, the ambassadors of a lot of these little micro-states in the Pacific that support uh, Taiwan diplomatically. Um, so to, to start shoring up, there's a little bit more of an active, coordinated effort here on the part of the U.S. executive branch to support Taiwan. But relative to, relative to what Congress is doing, it seems kind of small, in a sense, at least. Uh, Congress has been coming out with a lot of stuff, usually bipartisan now, uh, which is a, a step forward, and in a, a significantly increasing frequency uh, have been passing bills in support of Taiwan. A lot of them are technically, they're more symbolic than they are useful. They are the sense of Congress, which essentially means they're telling the executive branch, hey, we think it would be a good idea if you did X, Y, and Z. And a lot of these laws, some of them do have some very specific provisions, like uh, they need, you know, the executive branch needs to come up with reports on interference in Taiwan's election and so on and so forth. This, a lot of these kinds of little things. Um, but what they're doing is, is they're focusing attention on the issue of Taiwan, and very symbol uh, symbolically is that they are much more bipartisan and much more regular and much more consistent than they've been in the past. Um, and a couple of things that I think are very interesting now is that the U.S. Congress, and it's not the first time these things have appeared, but they seem to have a lot more support than they have in the past, and that is for things like a free trade agreement, which Ross referenced, uh, 160 or so, uh, which is about a third of the House of Representatives uh, signed a letter supporting uh, the um, you know the uh, signing a trade deal with Taiwan, and another idea that's started to be floated, uh, which is also another very interesting uh, idea, is to set an ambassador at large for Taiwan. Now, an ambassador at large is an ambassador, uh, which you'd normally send to a country, but an ambassador at large is usually chosen on a topic. So this would mean that Taiwan, if this were to go through, and the executive were to follow through on it, this would mean that the United States would actually have an ambassador in Taiwan, in spite of not technically recognizing uh, the government here as, uh, you know, as a diplomatic relation or a real country. So that's a very interesting, essentially sidestepping the one-China policy. 
Now, the upshot of a lot of this is that they are uh, riling up China. Uh, the, 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 the People's Republic of China is not happy with these moves, um, on the one hand. And on the other is that it seems to be uh, geared at helping Taiwan. This is a lot of speculation on this. Taiwan has been, uh, after the 2012 election, where basically the U.S. government sort of hinted that she wasn't, they didn't think she was a good choice. Uh, she's become a very strong supporter of the United States, whereas the KMT now is the party that's viewed as being not very warm to the United States, much closer to China. And so a lot of this, in a way, is whether intentionally or not, and I think sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, um, is showing support for the Taiwan administration. Ryan, of course, Donovan, your top business story of the year had something to do with returning investment. Yeah, and I think that this is part of um, the Trump administration's strategy, is they've set this uh, trade war with China because China, of course, has been for years essentially flouting all the rules of free trade. And they've made a good point is that, you know, China is not acting in good faith. They're stealing uh, intellectual property. They've got their 2025 goal, which they've been very open about, essentially uh, take all the technology and investment they can out of the United States and other countries and then replicate it themselves and then cut them all out. Um, and there are a lot of trade barriers and all, all this, you know, on and on and on. Um, and so the Trump administration, unfortunately, they didn't coordinate with other countries, which would have made it far more effective, but they've ramped up the tariffs, set off this trade war, and, and Trump himself has been very, very clear that, you know, he can he's perfectly willing to keep this going indefinitely. Now, what this has accelerated uh, is a process that was already underway. Businesses in China were not terribly happy with the, you know, the rising wages, something that very few people talk about, which is very crucial as well, is extremely high turnover, uh, staff turnover. Um, the labor laws become harder. Uh, the environment generally for foreign firms has become more difficult. And so firms have been trickling out of uh, China for quite some time now, and then the, this trade war has accelerated it. And one of the big, the big beneficiaries, uh, I, think, believe, I think the three top ones were Mexico, uh, Vietnam, and Taiwan. A lot of the countries are Taiwanese companies, and they're uh, you know, relocating to Vietnam, for example, um, uh, Baocheng, the shoe manufacturer, had already, even before the, tra the, the trade war, had moved most of its production out of China. And they used to have, over, I believe, over a million employees there, moved a lot of that to Vietnam. But a lot of the companies, particularly the middle to upper uh, technology uh, levels, have moved back or, or are pledging to move back to Taiwan. Um, the number of companies, it's like almost every day there are you know, large, significant thousands of people, employee, you know, job creation and plans announced to come back in. And it's turning into something of a flood, at least in MOUs. In other words, they're saying they will do it. Now the question is how much of it will actually materialize. The KMT is saying that they're not, the money's not actually being brought back from China. But that kind of misses the point because what's, what these companies are doing is they're moving the jobs back, the investment back, whether they're bringing the money directly in from China and their capital controls or if they're bringing it from you know, financial sources elsewhere. The important thing is they're moving the manufacturing, they're moving the R&D, they're moving the back-end stuff, they're moving that back to Taiwan, or at least pledging to. Some of them have already done it. 
Uh, a lot of them have already gone far enough in the process, in other words, getting land and so on and so forth, to try, that they are, looks like they're definitely going to go ahead. Some of them won't materialize, but over the, the this year's story is all the pledges to come back, and some of them are already happening. So really what to watch for next year is how much of it actually materializes. Ryan Ross, what was your top business story of the year? Uh, well, uh, unlike Donovan, I'm going to talk about things that actually materialized. Uh, the main issue uh, in, in the transportation sector was uh, labor uh, in the airlines. So there, there were several uh, industrial actions by employees, uh, both at, at China Airlines as well as uh, Evair Airlines. Um, some of them went on for uh, several weeks. Uh, the interesting thing was it wasn't 100% participation um, in these actions. So the airlines were still able to fly. And of course, some passengers were inconvenienced and government had to play the middleman to negotiate peace between um, flight attendants or pilots and, and, and management. And, and they eventually got there. Um, probably could have been avoided with a little more flexibility from both sides and probably more so from the employers, because it seems like the employees had some legitimate concerns about uh, work hours and, and, and the lack of rest time. And as, as the traveling public, we certainly want the flight attendants and pilots to be adequately rested. Uh, but also in the airline sector, uh, the Far Eastern air transport uh, failed again. They're trying to fly again as well. Uh, so this is an airline with a long history of financial problems, and uh, it's uh, like a cat. Even though its name is FAT, not CAT, it's had several lives, um, and uh, hopefully they'll survive uh, with with a, a good financial footing because it's good for competition to have several airlines. Uh, which brings us to the uh, somewhat positive news in the airline sector, which is that uh, Starlux Airlines continued to make moves towards its launch, which, which is expected in the, in the first quarter of, of next year. And I think, uh, again, as members of the traveling public, that's very positive. Um, the management team has a lot of excellent experience, including the the leader, the founder who came from EVA. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of optimism uh, about that. Um, uh, on the other hand, and I'll just leave this segment, Gavin, with one more unfortunately negative thing, which wasn't labor or financials, but it was the corruption scandal involving um, the purchase of duty-free goods on board the charter flights for President Tsai when, when she traveled overseas, which was operated by China Airlines. And, and it seems that a lot of the political appointees, which you know shows again that um, – Corruption or a lack of ethics transcends political parties in Taiwan, uh, but a lot of the political appointees who really are ill-qualified for their jobs, uh, who, who are running the subsidiaries of China Airlines that are involved in, in things like the sale of duty-free goods, uh, they're really not up to the job. So even if they weren't on the take themselves, uh, they, they don't really have a good handle on what's going on within the operation. And similarly, uh, given that it also involved not just airline employees, uh, but uh, bodyguards and national security officials, uh, the whole situation reflected poorly both on, on the airline as well as the government. Now we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, we move on from all our nitty-gritty, more hard stories, and we'll move on to society. Now, Ross, what was your society story of the year? Well, uh, consistent with the transportation theme, uh, I, I think there was a big change in transportation in, for bus users in Taipei, which was the implementation of swiping your stored value card in Mandarin called the yo ka when you get on and off, or as you might say, Gavin, uh, boarding and alighting uh, in, in, in your English, not American English. Uh, before some bus routes, you paid when you got on. Some you paid when you got off. Some if the routes, if the buses, if it went over uh, two segments, and nobody really knew what the segments were. It was all kind of confusing. Uh, you had to ask the driver. And really, uh, you know, asking a driver is kind of dangerous because you want you want him or her to be focusing on the road. Uh, but it was all very confusing. And try explaining this to a, a, a visitor to Taipei as well, a tourist, or if you have a friend who visits. Uh, so this is great. You, you swipe when you get on, you swipe when you get off, just like a lot of other uh, countries or cities around the world do. So it's good to see some, some, some normalization. And, and to be very fair to the bus companies and the authorities on, on this topic, they put a lot of announcements, both within the buses and even the electronic signs on the, on the front of the bus, above the windshield that shows the, the number of the route and the destination. Big, big letters or electronic uh, signage uh, flashing that you swipe your card when you get on and when you get off. So uh, I have to say smooth implementation of something that uh, should have been done a long time ago. Uh, and most people, are, I, I would say, are pretty happy with this because it, it eliminates the confusion. Right, Donovan, what was your society-related story of the year? On the buses, it's been like that for years in Taichung. So, um, all right. So I talked about um, I, br- I brought up uh, the passage of the Marriage Equality Act, um, and this has been the culmination of a lot of things. And this year, it came to a head, um, but it doesn't appear that, that it's necessarily going to be a dead issue going forward. We just don't know yet. Um, it was a, this was something that obviously attracted a lot of uh, attention worldwide. It was you know touted as the first in Asia. And so, you know, on, at least on the surface, this is a big societal shift. Uh, kind of the fly in the ointment, of course, was that the, at the end of last year, there was the referendums that passed, which showed a majority of the people, uh, the majority of the people who voted on the referendums were actually against it, although the wording was confusing. And that ran counter to um, opinion polling, which suggested that at least a plurality was behind it in the past. So, uh, but it was passed. Uh, um, and this now means, you know, that, that, of course, there is marriage equality and it's starting, you know, now it's actually in force. It's going forward. Uh, but there are a couple of problems with it uh, that, that uh, so it's not a complete, uh, the, the passage wasn't complete. It isn't, um, there's two things. One is that when it comes to adoption, uh, the only, they, one, at least one of the two parents can adopt a blood relative, or can one can adopt, but they, their partner cannot uh, does not have legal authority as a parent over that adopted child. And the other is that marriage is still not open to partners who are foreigners from countries who don't have a similar law. Right, and moving on to culture, Donovan. What was your culture story of the year? Yes, <laughs> it's the Puyen baseball hats. Um, now, this is kind of a, a, a kind of a cute story. Um, 
There, there was a uh, Norwegian, uh, he was an Ironman triathlete, I think he was, is, and he ran this race in Nice, France, this Ironman race, and he won. Now, this is, would not normally be news in Taiwan. Taiwan's not big on that circuit. Most, you know, I think a lot of Taiwanese, you know, know very little about this sport at all. But some sharp-eyed people noticed that he was wearing a hat from a temple in Puyen Township in Zhanghua County when he won the race. And so suddenly there was, a, you know, and, and it was his, the, apparently this guy's lucky hat. So all of a sudden there was this craze of people buying these hats. And it got so kind of out of control that the, uh, the, you know, the temple kept producing more hats, but they were giving them away for free because they were temple. Um, but there was a whole black market had come up and fake hats and uh, they became, you saw TV hosts, uh, you know, on the news shows wearing these hats. I think Wang Jinping gave one to Terry Go. Um, but the, the, the origin of the story is kind of funny. It basically, this guy, all that, what happened was he was running a race in Tokyo and he found this hat. Nobody knows how it got there, but he found it by the side of the road. He picked it up, dusted it off, decided he liked this hat, which is simply a blue hat with yellow characters on it, which he couldn't read, thought it was Japanese, and kept it and made it his lucky hat. Now, what's a little bit ironic is that he won that race in France. All of a sudden, there's, there's this big fear about him and his lucky hat from, from Taiwan. And it turns out that he had actually lost the hat after winning that race, he set aside the hat to take the trophy and lost the hat. Now, the, the finally, the happy ending of the story is uh, Commissioner Wang Huimei from Zhanghua repeatedly invited him and invited him, and finally she was successful in getting him to come, and she gave him a new hat. There we go, the lucky hat, the lucky, lucky hat. And, Ross, culture, what was culturally amazing this year for you? Uh, unfortunately, it was the decision by the Chinese film industry, uh, obviously under pressure from the authorities in Beijing, um, to boycott the Golden Horse Film Awards here in Taiwan. And then subsequently, most of the Hong Kong film industry, due to their own business uh, uh, priorities in China, they went along with that. So the Golden Horse uh, lacked the entrance and the presence at the the uh, award ceremony from China and Hong Kong that it has had in the past. And uh, you know, that's obviously unfortunate that politics have now intruded to such an extent into the award ceremony. Um, but it's, it's part of the state of Taiwan-China relations right now. So it's not a surprise. Uh, I wouldn't be optimistic about this changing for the better. Uh, but the one positive that might come out of it is maybe more people in Taiwan will say, why, why do we have this big ceremony where we also consider it our role to give a platform to films from Hong Kong or China or Singapore, Malaysia, other Mandarin speaking uh, film productions? Let's just make this about Taiwan cinema and the Taiwan movie industry. So, 
well, there are film ceremony, film award ceremonies in, throughout Asia, including in China. So you know, maybe it's time that, that Taiwan just moves on from this and says, you know what, we're going to make this an exclusively Taiwan event, right? Why, why are taxpayers and the government underwriting an event that um, might give awards to Chinese filmmakers or Hong Kong actors? Uh, so unless it's a, hopefully that's the direction they'll go, unless it's a Taiwan production you know it's just irrelevant don't 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 even accept them as entrants who cares whether or not some hong kong film actor or chinese film actor or actress come to taiwan uh i'm not optimistic that's going to happen what'll probably happen is the organizers will once again ask the chinese in the hong kong film industry to be present to enter their films and uh given or what it subject to the state of relations at that time there'll be you know the we're in we're out we're in we're out finally we're out and everyone will say how awful it is and gavin will probably be having the same conversation again uh, rather than taiwan just making the taking the initiative to say that's it no more china and hong kong in this ceremony Right, on our final topic for the year's top stories, we look at the top offbeat or downright stupid story. Now, Ross, I believe a marriage was your story thus. Well, uh, congratulations, or as my people would say, mazel tov to Lin Jiling for getting married. And that was a, a topic of much speculation throughout her career as a public figure, given that uh, she's been in the public eye now for uh, 20 plus years and she wasn't married yet, which frankly is her business. But uh, she did get married this year to, to a Japanese uh, model and uh, the the funny aspect of this Gavin is the number of men in Taiwan and I, I guess outside Taiwan as well who who are personally impacted by this. You know, people. Oh my gosh, Lin Jilin got married. I'm heartbroken. You know, all these people walking around thinking Lin Jilin was about to come into their life and and you know go on a date with them or get in a relationship with them. I mean, seriously, you know, grow up, get a life. You know, go find a girlfriend that you know will actually be dating you, not someone imaginary. But yeah. So many people, you know, walking around or saying, "Oh my gosh, Lin Jolene, she got married." Uh, I'm heartbroken. You know, was, that, that was uh, funny, or might even say silly. Uh, but you know, to be fair to Lin Jolene, um, she, she obviously has a, a tremendous following and and and, and is held in, in high regard. Right? She also does a lot of charitable activities, and, and I think people were genuinely happy uh, that for her that she got married. But uh, again, it came with this weird aspect of people saying, "Oh, I'm heartbroken." And Donovan, what was your funny, offbeat, or downright stupid story of the year when you weren't bemoaning Lin Jerling getting wed? <laughs> well, I, I think I mixed up two of my stories here. Um, the, uh, I was going to talk about the, the bridge collapse, um, but that really isn't a fun story to end on. So I think I'll go with the international craze here. Worldwide, they've they got a lot of uh, worldwide attention, national press, you know, international press, and it's about the zombie snails in Zhanghua. Uh, now, these snails, essentially, where you know their antenna there, what, what happened was is that they were they had these funny colors going back and forth, and what it turns out is that they were parasites inside of the snails, and they created this sort of multicolored glowing effect that made them look like space aliens. Um, so Zhanghua became the uh, the internationally focused. Uh, it has center for zombie space alien looking snails. You haven't seen any of these snails, though. No, I haven't. <laughs> 
Right. Now, that was our wrap-up of the year that was. Now, I'm going to ask my two guests one simple question before we leave today's show. And that question is, Ross, what can we expect next year? Uh, it seems that a lot of these stories will will reappear in either identical or similar formats. So, uh, for example, I mentioned a number of transportation-related stories. So that's always a topic of, of conversation, whether it's road, train, air. It, it seems that there's always something being built. Or, uh, Sorry, Donovan mentioned a bridge collapse, unfortunately. Uh, airlines uh, having labor problems, um, uh, new airlines. So there will always be a, a transportation issue. There's obviously going to be a lot of political issues with the election and who's ever sworn in. And uh, there will all definitely be a year from now, Gavin, we'll definitely be talking about some odd cultural phenomenon, whether it's uh, alien snails or some celebrity news. Uh, there's always going to be stuff like that as well. And who's going to get married next year then? Ross, who, what big celebrity do you think people will be crying about? Well, um, some of your listeners might might be curious to know, Gavin. I'm single and available, so uh, if, if someone wants to marry me, they could just contact ICRT. Or you can go on Tinder. Anyway, <laughs> Donovan, what do you what do you foresee for next year? Well, outside of my marriage marriage to Jolyn, um, I, I think that this year a lot of things are kind of in the air that may may come to fruition or not next year, and I think that's really what what to watch for. Um, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, you know, whether or not a lot of these investments coming back actually materialize, if they do, uh, then that could be very, very big for the economy here. The problem is, of course, there's a lot of shortages, land shortages, it being a big one, um, uh, personnel shortages in some cases, um, and so there's a lot of a lot of barriers or problems for a lot of these uh, returning companies. If they can sort these out, and a lot of them are not actually insurmountable problems, then that could be a huge thing uh, for Taiwan economically uh, going forward. Um, so there's a lot of these stories. Another one, another one uh, is whether or not the you know a lot of these initiatives and things that people are talking about. For example, you have think tanks in the U.S. Uh, Project uh, 2049 that is apparently working on uh, a plan for the United States to recognize Taiwan as a government. I don't see that happening, but there could be things like you know the possibility of a free trade agreement. Will it happen? Probably not, but it's possible for the first time in a long time. The, the circumstances are looking more favorable to this kind of thing, an ambassador at large. There's a lot more possibilities for these kinds of things happening than there have been for years. And then, of course, finally, we really have to be concerned about whether or not the zombie snails will be taking over. Right. On that note, we'll say adieu from my two guests for 2019, those being Ross Feingold. Happy New Year. And Donovan Smith. And look forward to next year. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. And just a note, we will be back to our usual format next week as we no doubt have to talk about the elections. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.